What up, fuck demons, and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, and today we're joined again by Yona Siena. Yona has a BA in Classics from the University of King's College in Halifax, where they were the vice president of the King's Pride Society. They teach Hebrew and Jewish topics, both privately and through various synagogues in Toronto, and have lectured in disability, on disability, not in disability, mental health and other topics. Yona is currently serving on the LGBTQ plus committee at the Miles Adele JCC, and will be taking Jewish studies at the graduate level this fall in the University of Cincinnati. What's up, Yona? Hey, how's it going? It's going great. I'm just going to take a quick sip of my coffee and then we'll get into today's article. Does that work? Ooh, delicious. What kind of coffee? It is Marley's decaf because I've mm. already had one calf and I think we both know that I don't need more caffeine in my system <laughs> <laughs> ever. <laughs> today's article is called The Eradication of Talmudic Abstractions, Antisemitism, Transmisogyny, and the National Socialist Project. Can you tell me a bit about this publication, Yona? I know it's from December 19th, 2018. Yeah, so this was an article published on the website Verso, where and it's it's very dense and a little bit academic, but it's tracing the connection between anti-Semitism and transmisogyny in Nazism and neo-Nazism. Great. Okay, so I'll do a summary. It's actually the summary is gonna be kind of like a few of our other more academic pieces. It's gonna be a little bit longer. I did my best to summarize where I could. But the article looks to explore the link in rising anti-Semitism and trans femicide, and it's divided into three parts. Part one, looking at actual Nazis. Part two, looking at neo-Nazis. And then part three, conclusions we can draw from it. Part one begins with the roots of anti-Semitism and trans femicide in Nazi Germany. We're going to shout out to Magnus Hirschfeld, founder of the Institute of Sexual Science in Berlin, Jewish guy. It's like when you see the Jewish name in the credits of a TV show, but better. Uh, He headed the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which was the world's first gay and trans advocacy group. This is why when you watch movies about trans people, they say, I went to Berlin for a surgery. They're talking about this institute. Yeah, before Germany became fascist, in the 1930s, it was the most like progressive place uh, for LGBTQ rights and for lots of other, it was a very socially progressive place. And um, National Socialism came really out of reaction to that and just swinging super far in the opposite direction. Which is funny because this institute itself was a direct response to the eugenics against homosexual and trans individuals in Germany in the late 1800s. So it's interesting how you had these eugenics, then you have this institute doing science, swinging it more left, and then you have a far right organization coming in and really ruining all of that progress. I think looking at Germany right before the rise of Nazism is is so sobering and important for us to never feel like we're safe from uh, the rise of fascism, that you can feel like, oh, everything's going in the right direction. And look, we're really fighting these ideas. And then all of a sudden, things can take a massive swing. Yeah. The Institute did a ton. I'm sorry, I have nothing to add. So I'm just going to go back to my notes. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. The article, the article says it all. Yeah. The Institute did a ton of cool shit. So they did a scientific study of sexual and gender variants with the aim to liberate not cure. They developed the first techniques for hormone replacement therapy and gender confirmation surgeries, and they protected gay and trans people from legal harassment and arrest. In 1933, the building was raided and documents were burned by the Nazis. The political motivations for this were rooted in anti-Semitic notions of Jews and the Jewish conspiracy, because many scientists involved in the Institute were Jewish. After this, the Nazis arrested many homosexuals and sent many trans women into the concentration camps where they were experimented on to try and find a cure. And that's what I find really interesting. The Nazis were doing experiments on people to try and find cures for their problems or what they deemed as problems, which is yeah. disgusting, but explains why they recorded everything altruistically. Yeah. And, and it's also really connected. To, you know, they had the base of Nazism is misapplied Darwinian evolution. We talk about, oh, the evils that come from misapplying religion. There's also such danger in misapplying science. So when you twist, you know, things that came from science, the ideas of evolution, you end up with this eugenic idea of the master race. And the Nazis were really terrified that the Jews were basically trying to, like, destroy their perfect race. Yeah, you threw in a really interesting note here, actually, I think, for this section. Yeah, there's this idea that's really prevalent even today in Um, white supremacy, that the Jews are trying to, quote unquote, destroy the white race from within. 
Like that we have infiltrated whiteness with the goal of, you know, this two-pronged assault. We're going to destroy whiteness by perverting them, by making them gay, by making them trans. And then we're also going to uplift uh, non-white people like in this big race war. That's the the grotesque fantasy of the white supremacists. Right, specifically because Jews are frequently involved in social justice movements. That's the the huge irony. Like the I the it sort of blows my mind that there are people who think that the motivation of someone to be involved in social justice wouldn't be social justice, like that we actually care about this. They're like, oh no, nobody actually cares about non-white people. They're just doing it because they have this other agenda. And and this was the motivation behind the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting as well, that the shooter said, oh, they're so involved in bringing refugees in because they're trying to destroy America, rather than what is actually our motivation, which is to help people because we care about people, but they can't, they can't wrap their heads around that. They think there must be this nefarious, selfish reason why we're helping people rather than like, actually we understand suffering and and want to reduce it in the world. I'm going to move on to part two, looking at modern neo-Nazis. Excellent segue. Yeah. So it talks about Kevin McDonald, who's an anti-Semitic evolutionary psychologist and neo-Nazis favorite academic, which by the way, whenever some dude quotes evolutionary psychology at me, I, I cannot believe them. For this exact reason. Oh, it's so toxic. And you can explain anything through evolutionary psychology. They're like, oh, well, we, we, we assume that people do this because thousands of years ago this happened. And you can't really prove it. So you can't really disprove it. Right. When people say like, oh, women are, are so designed this way and men are designed this way because, it, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, this is what our ancestors' life was like. And it's like, actually, if we look at the archaeology We don't know exactly what their lives were like, but the one thing that we do know is that humanity has always been diverse, and that has always been our strength, is our ability to adapt to different situations and to be flexible, and we don't have one essential essence at our core. Well, you know, Yona, women were never fighters. Women never went to battle. They just stayed home and took care of the kids. Oh, this is a shield maiden? Oh, we couldn't tell because her armor looks the same as a man's armor? Whoops. There was recently a discovery of a uh, woman from the Paleolithic, we're talking tens of thousands of years ago, buried with all the equipment of a fighter, of a, of a hunter. So this whole idea that men were hunters and women were gatherers is actually untrue. We know that there was places where women were hunters. Another one that I've heard most recently is evolutionary psychology, which is why I take everything men say about evolutionary psychology with a grain of salt, because it's never women quoting evolutionary psychology to me. I want to clarify, I'm saying men because I I never have women quoting evolutionary psychology to me. I had one person say, when a guy goes to a club, women want a man who they can't have. So if a guy's at a club surrounded by women, women gravitate towards him because, oh, he's already taken. Women want a man who's already taken. This was like a guy arguing with me at a party who was a friend of mine, and I just at one point stopped arguing. But all I could think was, have you considered that maybe women look at a man surrounded by women and see safety? All those women trust him. It's a pre-vetting process. There's so many reasons why this might be your experience, but appealing to like your caveman ancestors is such a, a weak way out to be like, you know, I know exactly why this guy has a bunch of women around him. It's because 10,000 years ago, it's like, actually it's because this guy's pretty dope and all these women think he's cool. Caveman ancestors have nothing to do with this. It's so fascinating when men come up with these explanations for women's behavior and men's behavior, but they, once again, um, why talk to a fish when you can talk to the fisherman? Because, you know, that same same thing. And it's like, well, women might have a slightly different perspective on our motivations behind things. Maybe you could ask her because she's an individual who's made an individual choice based on an individual circumstance. Yep. All right. So that was a fun tangent. We're going to come back to summarizing there. I could tangent forever. Kevin McDonald, anti-Semitic evolutionary psychologist. He attributes a vast amount of social power to the Jews, essentially placing Jews as the clandestine agents behind such varying movements as Bolshevism, social democracy, and later anti-colonial struggle, gaining trans liberation, feminism, the black power movement, all of which are designed in order to undermine Western culture and societal norms. It is in the interest of Jews to undermine these societal norms, the nuclear family, compulsory heterosexuality, and a strict gender binary, in order to prevent the development of fascism. I just want to say, don't you realize that fascism is the bad thing undermining harmful social norms like compulsory heterosexuality and a strict gender binary? Like, this is 
this is good. This helps people. And and our motivation is that it is good and helps people. And this other thing hurts people. Well, you know what? Some people do really well being told what to do and being given strict orders to follow when they join the army. Especially when those strict orders are laced with this idea of like racial superiority that like you, you are, are better superior. You are better inherently than these other people. You deserve more when bad things happen to you. It is their fault. And in the, the right order, you would get everything handed to you because you are superior. It's a very toxic, dangerous, uh, and understandably tempting ideology. Neo-Nazis take this idea and they run with it. One follower of McDonald's points to Transparent, the TV show, as a weapon of the Jewish-dominated culture industry to propagate transgender ideology. We can see that Nazism understands itself to be engaged in a culture war with Jews over gender roles and gender-slash-sexual variants. But just as we saw in the original nationalist, National Socialist regime, Nazism also understands the fundamental terrain of this war to be on the level of biology. There's a deep anxiety expressed in Nazi and far-right thinking, which is constantly concerned about the biological undermining of the white race, yes, but also the white male and his hormone balance, specifically his testosterone level. The yeah. And this goes back to what you're saying about the idea of the feminization of, of men and the idea that men need to be masculine and men and have testosterone and look and act a certain mm -hmm. way. And so the idea is if the white race is like so superior and it's in our blood, what can be done? Like, how are the Jews trying to you know, defeat us, but we're so superior. And the answer is, well, since they can't like directly touch our superior blood, they're trying to promote interracial marriage, which will dilute our beautiful white blood. And they're trying to uh, effeminize, to feminize the men and reduce our testosterone because that's the other source of our strength. And I just want to take another quote from this article because this is something you might be familiar with and it's just this hilarious, absurd thing but now you can see how it clicks in to the larger white supremacist ideologies that are being used as dog whistles in the alt-right. And that is uh, Alex Jones, the- He's a neo-Nazi. Head, yeah. yeah, the head of this independent video channel called Infowars, has notoriously warned of the Jewish conspiracy via the dog whistle of globalists to corrupt biology and specifically to undermine masculine hormone levels. One of his most famous outbursts involves screaming that globalists, read Jews, are poisoning the water supply with feminine hormones and turning the frickin' frogs gay. Wow. Like, this was a, a huge, like, meme at one point because of just how hilariously absurd it was, but this is people, a thing that conspiracy theorists believe. This whole time I've been saying how much I, I would love to be bisexual because the people I could have sex with and really enjoy that, like just, it would really open up a lot of doors for me if I was bi or pan. Um, mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying here is that according to this man, all I had to do was contact the Jewish globalist elders and request for hormone therapy to make me gay. That's, that's what I needed. That's, I mean, if we can do it to the frogs. I'm upset. I just... Uh, Where's the United Jewish Appeal has been like, I have to say, they've been withholding the gay drug from me <laughs> and I'm going to protest. I'm very upset. You know what, Ray? I think that the idea, you know, if we're going to talk to a white supremacist, I think their answer would probably be that we're saving all of the gay drugs to give to the white people oh. so that we can prioritize turning them gay. and Is this what the Jewish laser is for? We're just going to like take our freaking laser beams and put them on a shark head and just laser beam a uh, gay, gay juju into people with the hormone replacement therapy? I, yeah, there was a, a thing that recently happened that people blamed Trump supporters storming the Capitol on them being seduced by leftists with psychoactive drugs hidden in their vaginas. Sexy. Okay, I'm going to move on to part three because I'm not going to fall down the lizard people hole again. We did that last season. We can touch on it again this season. Conspiracy theories are so fascinating. Part three talks about how Jews are ascribed great power, but this power is not manifest directly, but mediated through many modes of appearance. The idea is that Jews are the personification of capitalism and cultural transformation of modernity that accompanies the development of capitalism, which is also ironic because I know a lot of socialist Jews. Well, we're we're both. The idea is that we're the ones behind everything. We're we're both the evil capitalist and we're the socialist. Right. And whenever there's social transformation, that's going to undermine these core tenets of masculinity and 
heteronormativity. It's the Jews. Mm-hmm. So Nazism understands all political antagonism through the lens of social Darwinism, biological health, and purity of distinct racial groups, and that this is important in the struggle for supremacy. Just as the Jew becomes the concrete manifestation of the abstraction of capitalism and the law of value, the trans woman becomes the concrete manifestation of the abstraction and denaturalization of gender. So this article talks about how Nazis take people and make them a symbol of the abstraction away from something. And abstractions are bad. We need to put things in their boxes so we can understand them. And I'm just going to take another quote from the article, which which says it really, really well. What has been neglected by uh, people studying this is the centrality of endocrinological purity and security to Nazi ideology. In this sense, endocrinological purity is the gender-sex corollary of the Nazi eugenic project of racial purity. So I'm going to say that in different words because that was very, like, academic speak. The racial purity, which is, like, such a anxiety of white supremacists and other, like, neo-Nazis, is tied intrinsically to the anxiety about another kind of purity, and that's the purity of masculinity. So the purity of the virile, masculine white man is being threatened, according to them, on two fronts. The whiteness, the racial purity, and their testosterone level, this endocrinological purity. I'm going to end with one quote from the article, and then we'll move on to sort of chatting more generally if that works for you. It is the Jew who invents transgenderism as a weapon in their vast arsenal mobilized to undermine the purity and supremacy of the Aryan race, as we have seen above. For national socialism, the Jew is the abstraction par excellence and therefore responsible for engineering and dissemination of all other abstractions. This underpins the understanding of gender ideology as one of the projects of the Jewish conspiracy. So by the way, thank you for finding this article, Yona. It was a very fascinating read. I had never read anything connecting these two concepts together. Yeah, and I encourage everyone listening, if you're interested, to check out this article. It is a little bit dense and it's a little bit academic, but if you can give it a skim, it's really worth it. It really brings a lot of things to light. Definitely worth reading in parts if you need to take a break at certain points, because I certainly did. So, Yona, what are the general anti-Semitic misconceptions that you, you see in your everyday life or you've heard? Like you personally. So I'm going to say the big one is that people's fantasy about Jews is so much cooler than our reality. Like, I wish that we had the kind of power that people in conspiracy theories ascribed to us. Like, we, we, we don't. We don't have that power. Like Ray was joking about, like, wow, like we have these, these special gay drugs on demand. Like, I'd love that. You know, when people say, uh, you know, the Jew is the one destroying the fabric of the gender binary and compulsory heterosexuality. And I'm like, well, I really wish that we could turn the dial more on that, but like not for the reasons that you think. But also that just shows a gross misunderstanding. Like so many Orthodox Jews do everything they can to maintain the gender binary. That's the other thing is that the the big like misconception in every anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theory is that Jews could orchestrate a conspiracy as if three of us could like agree with each other for enough time to coordinate something like that. Yeah. The one thing I think that I have encountered the most in my everyday life is the cheap Jew stereotype or that Jews have all the money. So we have all the money, but we're still cheap, which I find so fascinating. You know, these conspiracy theories, when you look at them under a microscope, they start to have all these weird paradoxes and inconsistencies because Jews have become this bucket where you dump all of your insecurities and all of your fantasies. So the idea that someone is doing all of it, they're behind all of it. And it it ends up being like, well, how could they be behind all of it when that would mean that they were basically at war with themselves for no reason other than orchestrating a show for all of you? But it's a fantasy. It doesn't hold up when when you look at it seriously. Some of the things like the cheap Jew jokes, those are rooted in the fact that Jews were moneylenders. Well, there's actually two two potential reasons for why Jews were moneylenders. And the first is that we weren't allowed to have jobs other than moneylending. So that's one. Like a lot of countries said, you cannot do these jobs. You can only do this job. And that job is moneylending. One of the other most recent research going into it is also the idea that like the Romani, Jews migrated. So we, mm-hmm. we were travelers as well. And what's one job that you can do no matter what city you go to? You don't need to have land. You don't need to, you can't own 
large property, money lending is something people are going to need in every single city. So whether or not you are only told to do that job or it's just a really great job and then you go to your father's business and then it just sort of continues on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then you combine that with Nazi propaganda. You know, it's similar to what you were saying about Jews in Hollywood or we were talking about Jews in comic books. It's, it's not that there was some big, vast conspiracy. It's that at a certain point in time, not a lot of jobs were open for Jews. And once a few Jews got their foot in the door, well, then that opened the way for maybe a family business. There was a time when like everyone Jewish was involved in the garment industry because it was sort of passed down through families. Right. And you would bring in your friends and your family. I have a, a health clinic that I go to down the street from me, and all of the women who work there are South Asian, and they all speak the same language. It's not that that place only hires South Asian women. It's that when they're looking to hire someone, they might hire, they might say to a friend who they went to nursing school Mm -hmm. with, hey, we're hiring. Do you want to come in and apply? It's like low-key nepotism, but at the same time, it's useful to have an entire workplace where you all speak the same language and have the same culture. And I would say rather than nepotism, sometimes it can be nepotism, but a lot of the time we need to understand that our networks are still not racially balanced. We are still under the effects of what has been centuries of segregation. And because we're now getting to a place where segregation isn't enforced, we still have the legacy in that of our neighborhoods and our schools and our social networks that we inherit. So when I go to school and it's 99% white, it makes sense that later in life, my Facebook feed is 99% white because I was in a neighborhood that decades ago was only it was exclusive to white people. And then even though the neighborhood is is no longer racially segregated officially, the neighborhood has still passed down generationally to maintain that um, that mix. And so when I go to a school in that neighborhood, I go to a school with that mix. People's networks tend to be more racially homogeneous, even if they're not trying to. I think even aside from that, though, one of the things you can also note is there's like the out jokes and the in jokes. Mm. So when you grow up, I'm going to give an example of a homogeneous network, right? Like I, my high school was a lot of Korean people. Um, And so there were certain jokes that I started to understand because I was only hanging out with Korean people and watching Korean drama. And you got a sense of the, the kind of humor that they thought was really funny. So the kinds of jokes that, you know, Korean people told were very different about themselves, were very different than the jokes like a racist would say about a Korean person. And Mm -hmm. that's the same with Jewish jokes. So a lot of jokes saying, oh, Jews are cheap and cheap Jew jokes. I have never heard an adult Jewish person make that joke. The only people that I hear making those jokes are teenagers who are using it as like a defense mechanism because they have to get to the joke before their peer does. They're so used to being the butt Mm. of the joke. It's like the black guy telling like black jokes, loving fried chicken. And you're like, but everyone loves fried chicken. That's not funny. (laughs) Fried chicken's delicious. And it feels like such a weird joke to be like, ha ha, you like food. Right? And I feel like when you look at Jewish jokes from inside the community, they're not even understandable to people outside of it because half of the Ashkenazi jokes are in Yiddish. (laughs) They're just Yiddish puns that some of us don't even understand anymore. And another example I would give is the uh, Instagram account, Jewish Girl Problems. I laugh Mm. so hard. It's just Jewish in-jokes. It's jokes about challah. It's jokes about camp. It's jokes about all of this fun stuff. And if you're not actually Jewish or don't know a Jewish person or don't know the ins and outs of the community, you're not going to get any of them. So I find that those universal stereotype jokes, you know someone has never met a Jew when that's the joke that they're telling. Yeah, uh, 100%. I'm going to look up some uh, Jewish Girl Problems and see you know what what jokes we can get then and, and see sort of jewish humor that's not i would say jewish girl problems are very much like you have the old school jewish humor which is yiddish jokes it'd be familiar from seinfeld like an episode of seinfeld is very old jewish humor jewish girl problems mm-hmm. i would say is modern jewish humor amy schumer a lot of sex jokes i think in her case she makes a lot of camp jokes and like finding the camp counselor cute or you know, things like that. Uh, here's one of them. Every time I go outside, I have to say out loud how cold it is. It doesn't matter if I'm with people or not. I am an old Jewish woman. Mm-hmm. I read that one and I have actually called friends to tell them how cold it is outside. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. Oh, another one example would be when a guy tells you he's single and then it's a caption of the BBYO song leaders 
And underneath it goes, yeah, yeah, lie, lie, Yeah, the idea being like, yeah, lie. So that would be like another example of a really funny, I saw that one and I died. Especially because I had literally been talking to those song leaders like the day before. So... <laughs> Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how Nazism and anti-Semitism links to gender in a lot of weird, strange ways that I never would have connected. But I also feel like there is a lot of fetishization of the Jewish people in really strange ways. Mm. When I was in university, I was seeing this older man. I was 19. He was 28. He was married to someone who did porn. There was a lot there. It was a lot of fun. They were in an open relationship. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was supposed to be a fling. And his wife had German ancestry. And he was indigenous? You have a question mark there? Well, uh, yes, because I couldn't remember. I almost said a different word. And I'm like, no, we don't use that word anymore. That's oh, okay. not the word. Yeah. I, and he was he had, in, he had indigenous ancestry. So he himself had ancestry that had been in a lot of ethnic cleansing situations. And he asked me if I was interested in shooting a porn with his German wife, where I was the Holocaust camper for lack of a better word. And she was the German soldier. She was the Nazi. Oh, I was the prisoner in a camp. And once again, this is a person of indigenous heritage. He did not see the hypocrisy in what he was asking me, even though he talked all the time about indigenous rights. And um, I did continue to fuck him after because I was young. I did tell him, unfortunately, no, I will not be doing that. I, I was so taken aback and like didn't know how to even react other than that is not something I'm comfortable with as an individual and as a representative of my community. I cannot be that person. That gets us into the really uncomfortable topic, uh, the can of worms that is race play. Yeah. Which I know that for some people, race play is a really great way of exploring. Once again, we've talked about how BDSM and, and role play helps you explore fantasy in a safe way, helps mm-hmm. you explore things that you would never want to happen to you in real life in a way that is not dangerous and fun. That's why some Mm -hmm. women are into consent, non-consent play, Mm -hmm. which is what we call rape play now. For those of you who are unfamiliar, consent, non-consent. You're consenting to what appears to be a non-consensual situation. As a scene, as a fiction. And so someone else who's Jewish, they might be interested in this kind of a scene to do. I could never imagine a Jewish person filming it to put on the internet because of all of the responsibility that would be put on you at that point. I think that that's a really important thing when we're talking about uh, race play and sex and consent and is just to recognize uh, how deeply sensitive these topics are and and that if this is something that you are consenting to explore in the bedroom, that you and your partner are both excited about this and it's behind the bedroom door um, and it's helping you maybe process trauma or it's just a healthy part of your life, that's very different than the impact it makes on fetishization. Yeah, or even just the idea that he didn't even know anything about my connection to Judaism other than I was Jewish. That's the big thing. I think how you approach it, if you're, if if I'm going to approach someone and talk about, let's say a romantic partner, a sexual partner, and we're talking about kinks, I think we have to be very sensitive that, again, the bedroom door doesn't close and the whole world disappears. So when you're bringing things up that you want to explore, you have to deal with it sensitively and understand that this could be a really sensitive topic for that person in their life as a whole. And I don't think that uh, maybe in your situation, it was approached so sensitively for you. No, it was not. The other thing I would add is my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. They were never in camps. They were partisans. So on top of that, I think I was just so deeply offended that I just could not even process my feelings to have that conversation. Like I said, race play as a form of play for people can be healthy. But I could not, all I could think was, you're asking me to play the role that my grandparents had to live through. Yeah, I'm going to say this as well. I would be very deeply uncomfortable if I was playing some kind of consensual non-consent scene with someone who was genuinely misogynist. Yeah. Or someone who was genuine, had not unpacked those issues. And it, for them, wasn't play, but it was actually based in things that they carry outside the bedroom and like desire for for violence. I, I would be uncomfortable with that. I would be more comfortable exploring those things if both partners or all the partners involved have deconstructed and analyzed those 
social issues in their normal life. And then in the bedroom, it's a scene. Because the thing that makes the scene safe is that it is not real. You're not actually with someone who desires to harm you. And you know that very deeply. But if you don't know that very deeply, then it doesn't have the safety to it. It's not safe if you're not, if both parties and all the people involved haven't fully deconstructed the violence where that comes from. One thing my sister and I talk about all the time are representation of Nazis in media. Why are there so many World War II videos? Why are so many uniforms based off the Nazi uniform? And the truth is Nazi uniforms are really stylish. They were designed by Hugo Boss. Aesthetically, they are the most pleasing of all uniforms throughout all of history. And I think for a lot of people, they think very much surface level, like, oh, the Nazi uniforms look really cool. And that's as far as their thought goes. And I'm going to acknowledge the Nazi uniforms, they're definitely a look, right? Like, it's like any uniform, it's a look. And the Nazi uniform has both that, like, combination of military with 1940s style that people love, even in watching a period piece. And it's connected to their ultimate ideology, which is about the perfect virile masculine Aryan race. And the uniform is designed to project that. Yeah, masculinity and, and dominance. And they have skulls on their hats. That's fucking badass. What what military's like, we're the good guy. We're gonna put skulls on our on our hats, right? Like there's there's some really cool iconography. I will acknowledge that. That does not give you permission to say let's dress up and pretend. Just because it looks cool doesn't mean it's right. Yeah, a lot of people dressing as Nazis for Halloween, and I'm going to say that that's not a good look. Yeah, I mean, it is a look, but not a good one. No, no. So the next thing that I would bring up with uh, fetishization is, as we know, I'm a public figure on Instagram, and people cannot guess my race. It is so funny that they try. Uh, usually when people say, what are you? I say, please guess, because I like to collect data in a fun, it's like my fun survey. What have you gotten? Indigenous is the most obscure. Half Asian. I got once when I was wearing makeup in a particular way because of my almond shaped eyes. Thank you, Genghis Khan, I guess. I've gotten, people think I'm mixed of some sort, especially in the summer when I've been tanning because I love to tan. Uh, it's like my olive tone really just throws people off yeah. in the summer. My grandmother was once confused with a black person when she was in the South. Really? That's a fun story. She was that tan. It was very funny and very stupid. Anyway, I've gotten a lot of Greek, Italian, Middle Eastern. I Getting get a lot of people thinking I'm Middle Eastern. People tell me I look a lot like Mia Khalifa, hmm. who is no longer doing porn, but they they say that we look very similar, which is very interesting because she's actually had plastic surgery done on her face, and I have not had plastic surgery done, so I have some questions there. I mean, it's good to know that people get plastic surgery to look like me, <laughs> you know? That was nice. But as we know, I am 100% Jewish Ashkenazi, which means that I have Polish, Jewish ancestry on both sides. All of my ancestors were European Jews. The mix might come in once again. Thank you, Genghis Khan. Who knows? Like, But if I were to do one of those DNA tests, it would be like primarily Jewish Ashkenazi. And just to explain to people who uh, maybe don't know the history of like where Jews come from, Jewish people originated in the area that's now called Israel or Palestine, and were expelled, were deported by the Romans in 70 CE. And we spent the last 2000 years not being allowed to live in Israel in large numbers until 1948 when the state of Israel was reestablished, uh, or was established rather, because there wasn't a state before, it was like a, a kingdom or a province of Rome. But for the past 2000 years, Jews have lived all over the world and have developed separate uh, communities in each area where they've lived. So Ashkenazi is a Jewish community, originally 2,000 years ago coming from Israel, like all Jews do, but who have spent thousands of years in Europe and specifically uh, the hundreds of years in Eastern Europe in the sort of the area that was called the Vale of Settlement, which includes Poland, but Poland didn't quite exist. The other thing about that time period is that Jews were forbidden from associating with non-Jews, and they lived in their own communities called shtetls. And because Jews weren't allowed in regular cities and they weren't allowed to associate with non-Jews, Jews had no choice but to only marry other Jews because nobody else would associate with them. And it's only recently that that's changed. So that is where you get the ethnicity of Ashkenazi Jewish person, because literally they, I mean, a lot of Ashkenazi Jews also have IBS now because of all the intermarriage. Yeah, we've, the gene yeah, pool didn't do so well. No. But 
I think interfaith marriage is is an important thing for a reason now. Let's just leave it there. And lots of, uh, there's, Ashkenazi is not the only Jewish ethnicity. There's also Mizrahi. Sephardic, Mizrahi, Middle Eastern Jews, Ethiopian Jews. So there have been Jews. and, And in each of those places, oftentimes similar things have happened where in those communities, they've been separated from general society and uh, forced to live in ghettos only with each other. What a fascinating time. So why is this interesting and what does this have to do with fetishization? Because when people say, what's your background? I say, guess. They say, you look like me, a Khalifa. I go, actually, I'm Jewish Ashkenazi. I've had these responses. Oh my God, that's so exotic. Wow, what a sexy mixture. Yeah, because they think that Ashkenazi is the name for a non-Jewish ethnicity and that you are half Jewish and half, oh, Ashkenazi, what is that? Mm-hmm. And that also goes back to the idea that all Jews look the same. So they've now outed themselves as ignorant, which is not the same as racist. Some people are just ignorant, but I think you are ignorant and racist if you call Jewish Ashkenazi exotic. <laughs> I think it's uh, the word exotic to dis a person is a questionable choice. It is rooted in racism. Yeah, 100%. The idea that anything not white is exotic. And the part that makes me laugh the most is the idea that Jewish Ashkenazi is the whitest of Jews. We are the whitest. We are the white Jews. Just calling that a mix or exotic is ridiculous because we look white. We lived really far north in, in Poland. Yeah, like that's not exotic to racists who are white. Yeah. I mean, I also was once sitting in the hot tub at Oasis and this person was saying that you can tell a Jewish person just by looking at them. So it's me and a bunch of other people. And if we're in the hot tub at Oasis, we are all naked. And there was this like super sexy Brazilian guy who'd been like flirting with me all night. And I went, wait, what? What does a Jewish person look like? And he says, oh, they all have big noses and laughs to himself. And I'm like, okay, big noses. But like, how can you tell? Because I know lots of ethnicities that have like big noses. And the woman who starts this conversation goes, oh, you know, you can just tell. There's a look about them. And I said, really? But like, if I run into a Jewish person, how will I know? She goes, you just know. Like, I can't really describe it, but but you know. And I let her go on for a few more minutes. And then I said, really? Because you couldn't tell that I was Jewish. At which point, Brazilian guy gives me an oh shit look and just gets up and walks away because he knows he fucked up big. <laughs> and uh, the the woman in the hot tub kind of just kept digging her grave. And the other people of color in the hot tub with me were just making eye contact with me. And we're like, are you okay? I'm like, that was the funniest thing to ever happen. <laughs> As we know, racism is not allowed at Oasis. When I told my coworker slash boss who was on the clock, he removed that person from the club because telling someone you can tell a Jewish person just by looking at them is not okay. And that is racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk for a second about Jews and whiteness. Are are we white? Are Jews white? Depends on who you ask. I think it depends on who you ask in the lens, right? If you are looking at it from a place of privilege, I do think that white Jews do have white privilege but I don't think we have white Jewish privilege. So I think that, yes, we are white in those ways. The color of our skin is also so white, you can see through it sometimes. You could confuse us with the Irish. And for other olive-toned ones like me, maybe not so much. But I would say that it's just a really complicated conversation because when you ask the enemies of the Jewish people, the Nazis, they say, no, we're not white. And so we're either, I feel like when you are in leftist circles, you know, you're white, and therefore you are in power. And when you go to less leftist circles, more right-wing Nazi circles, you are not white. And it's a different kind of problematic power Mm -hmm. dynamic. And so you can't win. And it it comes uh, to the awkward thing of that whiteness is such an artificial social construct. It's not a real genetic thing that you can point to. It's this weird alliance of like several different groups of people who all decided one day that we were superior because of their skin color and Jews were excluded from that at that time and not only excluded but seen as the enemies of whiteness so if you go into a space like where people are are all about white pride quote unquote they will we're be fucked. virulently anti-semitic in a way that they won't be against other races that uh, or other groups of people who typically pass as white so in some ways, Jews are 100% white, if you're talking about an Ashkenazi Jew who lives in North America. And in other ways, in other contexts, uh, they will not be seen as white, but will be seen as like the farthest from white you can get, the enemies of whiteness. 
I just think the debate's kind of stupid. And I think it tells you what the values of the person you're talking to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why do we care if Jews are white? That being said, when I talk to an older generation of Jewish people, like my, I would say my parents' age or older, and they say Jews aren't white, I go, unfortunately, we have white privilege. And that's why we're having this discussion. So I'm one of those people where no matter who I'm talking to, I will argue with them because I'm obstinate. The whole point is to get someone to see a different perspective, right? If you are telling me that Jews aren't white, I'm going to tell them, unfortunately, for the average young Jewish person in, big, in the big city, we are. Our experience is very much one of white privilege because people are basing it off of what you look like, not what your secret religion that they can't tell by looking at you is. Yeah. And I think that that's the important thing to understand is that white doesn't mean one thing. And according to some definitions of it, like white privilege, it's important to recognize our privilege that we have as white people. Uh, the second thing is that sometimes, according to other like white supremacists, we wouldn't be considered white. And you can hold those two things at the same time. Recognize that a white supremacist would consider us Jewish as distinct to white, but that in typical society, we have white privilege. And so we are white in that other sense. Like there can be different contexts, different definitions. And I think it's okay to move between those different contexts and understand that your place is different in each of those spaces because people are more than one thing. And there's, there's one more thing that's very important to say and for everyone to understand is that Ashkenazi is not the only Jewish. Ashkenazi is not the only Jewish culture. And there are many, many Jews who are not seen as white, not because of their Judaism, but because of their background uh, in another place other than Poland. So if you're a Jew from North Africa, you're probably seen as North African and not white for that reason. The other thing I think is some people say white and they mean wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, mm -hmm. right? That whole culture. I know white Jews who are wealthy, who definitely come off as wasps. Like I definitely know some waspy Jews, but uh, I would say even the majority of white Jews that I encounter are not wasps and they're not maintaining the power structures of quiet wasps I mean, when you think of a wasp, you think of someone who doesn't yell, people who would rather brush under the rug than have it out. All of the white Jews I know go to therapy and they will yell at you at a restaurant, at the family dinner table. They don't care if guests are over. You say something that they don't agree with, they will let you know. Uh, so, you know, as you know from my bio, I went to university in Halifax and oh boy, is Halifax waspy. Uh, I definitely could feel with my curly hair and my not-so-waspy facial features, my Ashkenazi Jewish facial features, uh, and my not having an Anglican background, the, the difference between me and other people, and, and the cultural difference as well in terms of how loud I was, in terms of uh, how direct I was. A lot of the things that are seen as like the quintessential wasp culture are things that Jews do not have. They have the opposite of. It's very funny. I feel like also um, the Mrs. Maisel, you know what I mean? Like Mrs. Maisel, her family, like her parents, they're the Jews who fit in with wasp culture. And then the man she marries, the Maisels, they're your average Jewish family that by other people might be seen as crass or loud or too big, too loud, too much. Mm -hmm. Though both families are trying to uh, assimilate and to be respected by general society, but do find themselves subjected to a lot of what I would call racism. Yes. I have one last personal sex anecdote before we take a commercial break, which is uh, I once had a sex partner and we were in the bedroom and he was being all like, oh yeah, my, my sexy, like he was trying to do dirty talk. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh yeah, my sexy Israeli girl. And I literally stopped, pushed him off of me, sat up and said, I'm not Israeli. And he's like, oh, is that like a sensitive thing? I'm like, no. I'm not Israeli. My ancestry is Polish. I have nothing in common with Israel in their day-to-day. -day. Modern Israel, I have one cousin there that's so distantly related, we could legally get married and our gene pool <laughs> would still be okay. Okay? like Wouldn't be any more fucked than the average Ashkenazi no, gene pool. It would be way less fucked. That's how far away this cousin is for me. <laughs> and, and just to have someone be like, you're Jewish, therefore you are also Israeli. I'm like, you no. How would you like it if I was having sex with, I don't know, let's take someone who is from, uh, give me a country, uh, any country. New Zealand. New Zealand. I'm fucking a guy from New Zealand. And I'm like, oh yeah, my sexy man from Madagascar. <laughs> That's what it felt like. <laughs> you know, 
Like it was like, it's not even like saying Australia where they're literally like a stone's throw away. I think my geography is terrible. It was so ridiculous. So on that note, I do want to take a moment to talk about the fetishization of Israelism and the IDF by the Jewish people, because it's not just us getting fetishized by other people. We ourselves as a community do fetishize other Jewish people in our community, and that is the Israeli army. So there's this dichotomy that's come about between the sort of anti-Semitic stereotype of a Jew being projected onto Jews of the diaspora, meaning Jews who don't live in Israel. Ashkenazi American Jews, Jews, they're the ones who are seen as the weak, effeminate, internalized anti-Semitic caricature. And the Israeli is the new Jew, the buff Jew, the Jew who refuses to be uh, defined by those things in the past. We are the ones, you know, taking power, taking power back, and we're going to be strong and virile and masculine and hunky with our Israeli accents. Well, not just that, like the idea that like everyone's 18, so they're young and hot and they're not even done puberty yet. And they've got these like ripped muscles from their mandatory training and they all carry guns and guns are power and, you know, but they're Jewish. So your mother is thrilled if you marry them. <laughs> they speak a foreign language. It's all the things that are sexy about other people, but they're still Jewish. Yeah. So they're like already pre-approved for marriage. And uh, the question of, you know, whether Jews are white or not gets a lot more complicated when you go to Israel where people who've lived there for a few generations look a lot more Middle Eastern than they do uh, European, even if they have European ancestry. If they come for a visit to Canada, they are darker, they have sexy Middle Eastern accents, and... They also tend to have eating disorders, so they come and they just look with those... They've got their beach-ready bodies year-round, because there's a lot of interesting beauty standards going on in that country. And they, they are foreign, they are from a foreign country. And so yeah. when we talk about whiteness and foreignness, there's a complicated connection about, you know, is an Israeli Jew white when they come to America? Are they white while they're in Israel and they're surrounded by other Israeli Jews? And then there's also Jews who are like Ethiopian, like black Jews who live in Israel who are definitely not white because they come from Ethiopia. Yeah. And have been oppressed by the Ashkenazi Israeli majority. I was just realizing that the way people, the way the Jewish people talk about hooking up with an Israeli is the way that like literally every one of my other friends talk about Brazilian people. Hmm. Israelis are the Brazilians of Judaism. They have similar accents. They're like, yeah, they're hot. They're young. Even when they're old, they're young. The women stay hot forever. The men turn into old Jewish guys fairly quickly as soon as they get married. Like they let <laughs> themselves go as soon as they're married. It's great. But like literally like they're they're young. They're hot. They're new. Their country's new. They have accents. They're tan. They go to the beach every day. They're at war. So they are ready to protect you despite the fact that like it's conscription and it's so complicated and so many Israelis don't actually even want to go fight, mm -hmm. you know, in the army. It's fine. We're not going to get into that. But I do think it's very interesting that on your birthright trip, if you go, which is a free trip for Jewish people to Israel, which once again, North Americans call it birthright. It's a disgusting name. Israelis just call it literally translates to discovery, like mm -hmm. discover Israel. Um, every single girl on that trip is like, I want to hook up with an Israeli soldier. There's such a and every single guy it. on that trip is like, I want to hook up with an Israeli soldier. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's it's the uniform. Once again, it goes back to uniform and power and all of those things associated with these people. Yeah. And it's so connected with gender and uh, I'd say internalized anti-Semitism because Israeli guys are hot and diaspora girls are hot because the diaspora girls are also have this, you know, confident masculinity to them. But being a diaspora guy going into Israel and trying to flirt with Israeli girls, like suddenly uh, the image on that is like, oh, they're the nerdy small penis, weak, effeminate, diaspora Jews. And we can choose from the hot Israeli soldiers. I think that might be true from, from that side. I know for a fact that the Israelis see the women going on these trips as easy hookups. Easy hookups, yeah. Because they know that the girls want to hook up with an Israeli soldier, and they know that they're not necessarily interested in talking after their birthright is over. Yeah, that's also another part of the gender dynamic is how dating uh, is approached differently. Mm -hmm. Because you you wouldn't have a you know diaspora guy swarmed by Israeli girls because you probably wouldn't have any guy swarmed by a, a group of girls wherever you are because that's not the dynamic. And Israeli women tend to be very in-your-face and rude. 
I mean, Israelis in general, but like, I know that Israeli women are like, you don't let a guy talk to you like that. He should know his place. Like that's an Israeli woman. It's like the ultimate loud Jewish woman to the next degree because they all know how to shoot a gun. So, uh, you know, when you get into those stereotypes of uh, dominance that are seen as like a Jewish women's trait, diaspora women have have this association of being a little bit less that. Oh, I deal with Israeli women. An American girl is going to be easier. Literally easier to sleep with and easier to control, maybe. I don't know. I do think that a lot of dating when you're 18 has to do with people trying to control each other. But that is a separate podcast episode from today that I can't get into because it's time for a commercial break. Do you want to join the deviance defining elite and actually tell people about it? Are you, like me, a fuck demon? We are launching Sex News with Ray Swag with these common phrases. We've got hats. We've got toots. That's beanies for you Americans. We've got sweatshirts. We've got crop tops. And as usual, all the art was designed by me, so it definitely has my personal flair to it. Check out the new designs at sharewithray.com slash merch slash SNWR and pick up a piece to support the podcast today. Okay, Yona... I've got a question for you. I think you're going to really like this one. Uh, Ask away. When someone says, I made a life-changing decision, is that code for transitioning from a concerned citizen? Hi, concerned citizen. Uh, I think that it could be, and it also could not be. I think they're just saying a life-changing decision and you don't know what it is. But it is uh, good that you're realizing that uh, you can't tell whether someone is trans by looking at them all the time. And it's possible that that is that person starting to uh, open up that side of themselves to you. But you don't know. It could have been any life-changing decision. When I read that question, I thought, what are five other things? That, like, in my mind, it's always what are five other things that it could have been. And my first thought was they could have decided to quit their job. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've decided to run a marathon. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've decided to have a child. Yeah, buy a house. Yeah, I'm like, there are so many life-changing decisions that aren't transitioning. I would not take that sentence as a code for transitioning ever. I would just say, I'd love to hear about it. Do you want to tell me more? Yeah. And then see what they say. Uh, and you know what? That person, the life-changing decision that they're talking about could have been that they you know, got a new house. And they're also trans. It could, Who could knows? have been a trans be person both. talking about another life decision that they made. Because trans people are not defined by our transitions. I also, I'm just imagining now someone co- like coming out to the front being like, I've made a life-changing decision. And they're saying like, so I've decided to transition into being a woman and live as, as part of living my dream life. I've realized that I felt trapped by societal expectations. So I am transitioning to being a woman, quitting my job. I'm going to go live in a van and become a ukulele salesman, <laughs> a traveling ukulele saleswoman. Uh, and that's like, I'm imagining all of the ways that like that person's life could be changed that also could be sparked by transitioning because they'd had to be living a lie up until that point. And yeah, in different once ways. you're coming into your whole self, uh, opens up the door and maybe they've started to make all sorts of life-changing decisions to come fully into themselves. And, and that's exciting. And I wish them all the best in their new uh, trailer ukulele life. Yes, if that is in fact what has happened here. That's what that's the image in my head now. Thank you for listening. Yona, where can people contact or follow you? Uh, you can follow me at Yona Sienna on Twitter. You can join the Deviants Defining Elite at Sex News with Ray on Facebook and Instagram and submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. Listening to such an academic article reminded me of that article again, and we are going back to yelling Deviants Defining Elite at you over and over. Follow me at Wife Bay Ray on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and Razor Latex on Instagram and OnlyFans. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. Theme music is by Blank and Brilliant. Special thank you to Blue Microphones and Photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. 